Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 68A, Fateful Decisions, The Central Powers, from Alberich to Zimmerman. In the early hours of January 17, 1917, Admiralty codebreakers in Room 40 intercepted a telegram bound for the German embassy in Washington. Written in encrypted code, the telegram consisted of a series of interchangeable numbers, each set of numbers representing specific names, dates, and locations. On the surface, the telegram was no cause for concern. Traffic along the diplomatic cables had dipped in the previous weeks, and no special bulletins had been posted. But what piqued the Admiralty's interest was the method in which the telegram was sent out. The telegram's author, Germany's new foreign secretary, Arthur Zimmerman, had sent it through two channels, the first channel being the direct line to Washington, and the second being the private State Department cable, reserved for the German and American ambassadors. Unbeknownst to Zimmerman, or the Americans, the Admiralty had ears on both. The codebreakers could only decode part of the message. There were gaps in the encryption which still needed to be filled in. But once it was fully unveiled, the Admiralty had in their possession one of the most crass, diplomatic moves of the war. The infamous Zimmerman Telegram. The Zimmerman Telegram requires little in the way of introduction. Addressed to Mexican President Venustano Carranza, the telegram proposed an alliance between Germany and Mexico. It began by informing the Mexican president of Berlin's decision to resume unrestricted submarine warfare on February the 1st, a decision which was expected to cause irreparable harm to Germany's relationship with the United States. So to preempt any American involvement on the continent, Zimmerman was offering Mexico the chance to reconquer parts of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona in exchange for Mexican belligerency against the United States. To lure Carranza, Mexico would have carte blanche in the post-war settlements, and become the principal partner in a new Pacific military alliance with Germany and Japan. Zimmerman ended the telegram, urging that time was of the essence, writing, quote, The unrestricted employment of our submarines now offers the prospect of compelling England to make peace within a few months. End quote. Within the hour, the Zimmerman telegram lay in the hands of Rear Admiral Sir William R. Hall, Director of Naval Intelligence and the man in charge of Room 40's code-breaking operations. As he read over the telegram, Admiral Hall knew at once that what he held was both a deadly peril and a possible miracle. After two and a half years, America's belligerency seemed imminent. Although her armed forces were small and would need time to mobilize, her merchant fleet and manufacturing capabilities offered asylum to the hard-pressed allies. But Hall had more pressing issues. While Zimmerman's offer may read like a bad joke, the news that Germany was again planning to unleash her U-boats sent a chill down Hall's spine. According to Zimmerman, the campaign would begin on February the 1st, in just 11 days' time. Hall faced a moral and ethical conundrum. What to do with the information? He could not tell the Americans of Zimmerman's proposal, 
nor could he inform the other neutrals of the impending U-boat threat. Had he done either, he risked exposing to the Germans that their naval code had been cracked, thus negating everything the Admiralty had worked for over the past 29 months. Hall had but one choice. He sealed the telegram in the Admiralty safe, where it would lay like an unexploded grenade for the next 19 days. Only Hall and a few close associates knew of its existence. Meanwhile, a new dawn was unveiling across Europe, as the belligerents prepared for another year of war. The Zimmerman telegram was the first shot of the 1917 campaign. When it was published across U.S. newspapers that March, it shifted American opinion decisively against Germany. While the United States would not declare war for another month, it served as confirmation for what the Entente Allies had long suspected, but could not confirm. The Zimmerman telegram was evidence of Germany's desperation, and how far the Kaiser was willing to go to regain the upper hand. The Teutonic leadership had been shaken by the relentless battering of the 1916 campaigns, and while this by no means guaranteed an Allied victory in 1917, it was clear that Germany's grip was starting to weaken. On the Western Front, Germany fielded 154 divisions against 190 Anglo-French divisions. The capture of Romania, which supplied precious resources like oil, livestock, and rubber, also came with the added challenge of occupying another 300 kilometers of undefended frontier. Along with Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and Ottoman Turkey, the bloated Eastern Front now straggled its way from the Baltic to Black Sea, and stretched from North Africa all the way to Persia. How the Central Powers planned to defend this fortification was an hypothesis their opponents were eager to test. And so began the war's next great venture, the year 1917. 1917 is a year best known for three major events. The United States' entry into the war, the revolution in Russia, and the campaigns of Third Yeep, aka the Battles of Passchendaele. These events provide us with convenient bookends, and indeed general histories of the war often use them to bracket 1917 into a manageable scope. But what I intend to do over the next, oh, I don't know, 50 to 60 episodes or so, is to try and avoid getting trapped by the penumbra of these aforementioned events. What I have planned instead is to bring the lesser-known elements of 1917 into the spotlight. Events such as the Sixtus Affair, the German fleet actions in the Baltic, the Battle of Otranto Straits, Greece's entry into the war, the British conquest of Mesopotamia, the home front turn-up winter, Caporetto, the naval offensive, Bloody April, and finally, the Battle of Arras, which, as a Canadian, has special relevance to me, since the Battle of Arras is largely overshadowed by the capture of Vimy Ridge, which, according to accepted national narrative, changed the outcome of the war in just 72 hours. Needless to say, there will be lots to talk about. I don't have a set limit on the number of episodes, but I do expect it will take about the same amount as 1916. As always, we will be following events chronologically as best we can. I also have plans for a new batch of mini-episodes along the way. I was pleased that so many of you enjoyed the Great War Aircast in the Matahari episode, so I'm looking forward to doing that again. So as a quasi-introduction to 1917, I've split this episode into two parts. 
Part A will focus on the Central Powers, namely Germany, through the winter of 1916 and 1917, and in Part B will flip over to the Entente. As you probably guessed from the title of this episode, these will be broad overviews, designed to introduce some of the key figures and decisions, which will have a big impact on how the rest of the year played out. My goal is to ensure we have a firm grasp on the foundations, before we wade into deeper waters. So without further delay, let's jump right into it. Having survived combined offensives on all fronts, the Central Powers welcomed the cold embrace of winter. A period of rest and recuperation was sorely needed, and it could not have come sooner. In the east, Austria-Hungary was left reeling. Major losses in Italy and Galicia, followed by the death of Emperor Franz Joseph in November, had devastated the empire in a matter of months. Now more or less subjugated to German leadership, the Austro-Hungarians limped into 1917 more divided than ever before. It would not be long before Joseph's successor, his 29-year-old grandnephew, Charles I, began to seek peace with or without German oversight. The dependability of Austria-Hungary, Ottoman Turkey, and Bulgaria lingered on the minds of Germany's military and political leadership. Although there were always doubts about their reliability, German plans in 1917 would hinge on her allies' full participation. Simply put, Germany had fussed up to a basic truth, and that truth was that her army might no longer be the instrument of victory. Her infantry were exhausted, supplies were low, and her positions all out of whack. For Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff, addressing the condition of the army was the number one priority heading into the new year. After Romania's defeat, Hindenburg and Ludendorff were able to divert their attention to the Western Front. The two men visited the Western Front for the first time in September 1916, and it did not take long for them to realize they had no idea what they had gotten themselves into. Although they had been quick to criticize their predecessor's Western favoritism, they would both admit they underestimated the strain placed on the Western armies. Having come from the East, both were taken aback by its alien nature. Hindenburg called the Western Front an evil inheritance, and Ludendorff was surprised to see German troops equipped with the latest steel helmets. To get the bosses up to speed, a general staff meeting was held in Cambrai on September 7th. German field commanders aired their grievances, and the picture they painted was hardly reassuring. The Somme had drained their best manpower. Food was scarce. Gunners did not have enough shells, and there seemed to be no mutual strategy to deal with the Allied onslaught. Although the overall loss of territory on the Somme was a meager 6 kilometers at best, the brutal nature of the fight was unlike anything the Germans had experienced thus far. In 1915, Allied attacks would usually stall out after a couple of weeks, but this one had gone on for months, signaling an aggressive shift in Allied strategy. Ludendorff was highly critical of the army's defense on the Somme. After his experiences in the East, he was less concerned about the loss of terrain per se, than what the rigid denial of ground was costing in terms of manpower. Rather than trying to hold ground at all costs and counterattacking every Entente success, Ludendorff prescribed a more elastic defense, designed to absorb the shock of enemy attacks. 
In place of a number of trenches compressed in a minimum area, Ludendorff advised an extensive system of considerable depth. This way, attacks might be broken up at a distance, thus avoiding the barbarous close-quarter fighting so often seen on the Somme. The Cambrai Conference produced the germs of two important projects which fundamentally altered the German state and its military. The first was the Hindenburg Program, which we discussed in episode 62, Cracks in the Edifice. The second project was something much different. After surveying the strategic situation on the Western Front, Germany's military leaders concluded their divisions were stretched too thin. Forced to defend multiple salients and the threat of a renewed Allied offensive, convinced German command to cut their losses. So beginning in December 1916, German engineers, civilian laborers, and Russian POWs began construction on a massive fortification, upwards of 50 kilometers behind the initial front line. This was the infamous Hindenburg Line, or Hindenburgstellung a new defensive network consisting of barbed wire, anti-tank trenches, machine gun nests, and concrete pillboxes. The Hindenburg Line was where the German army would stake its claim for the remaining years of the war, creating what Hindenburg described as a great stand to. Upon completion, the Hindenburg Line stretched 482 kilometers, snaking its way from Lille in the north all the way to Verdun in the south. It took four months to build and reset the Western Front back to zero. If you go to the website, thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, you'll see I've uploaded a map of the Hindenburg Line and its key areas. But just as a brief rundown, the Hindenburg Line was made up of five separate structures. The Flanders Line in the north, the Voten Line from Armamontraz to Vimy, the Siegfried Line at Arras, the Hunding Line from Parigny to just north of Verdun, and finally, the Michael Line running all the way to Metz. Construction on the Hindenburg Line took place between December 1916 and March 1917. Historian Olger Herwig describes it as the war's greatest feat of engineering. Hindenburg himself would no doubt agree, writing in his memoir, quote, In view of the enormously increased scale of everything, Historical comparisons cannot be drawn from earlier wars. End quote. The logistics alone are impressive enough. Nearly a half million reservists, civilian laborers, and Russian POWs toiled on the new barrier. 170,000 French and Belgian workers were shipped in to dig trenches and pour concrete. 1,250 supply trains, 40 cars in length, were rerouted to freight supplies all along the construction site. Each of the Hindenburg Line's five sections consisted of three layers of fortifications, with additional supporting positions sprinkled throughout. An Allied soldier attacking this fortress would first encounter the outer layer, which consisted of anti-tank trenches and barbed wire obstacles. Each trench was three meters deep and four meters wide. The wire entanglements were divided into five barriers, each four meters deep and set 20 meters apart. If our soldier was lucky to get past this outer layer, he then had to grapple with the middle layer. This was the primary killing ground, composed of steel reinforced blockhouses 
many of which still survive today. Each blockhouse consumed 30 to 40 tons of concrete, and could be built at a rate of 5 per day. Armed with machine guns and serviced by underground tunnels, each blockhouse was its own self-sustaining fortress, typically manned by two gunners, a spotter, and auxiliary troops in the basement. This middle layer extended anywhere from two to 3,000 meters, further divided into subsidiary positions with additional machine guns, mortar crews, sniper nests, and anti-personnel traps. Having survived the second layer, our now exhausted soldier would then encounter the main network. 200 meters behind the middle layer was a system of zigzagging trenches, set at acute angles to avoid enfilading fire. These positions stored ammunition, medical stations, telegraphs, and transformers. But that's not all. This is where the attacker would encounter the main bulk of the German infantry, who, well-versed in navigating the labyrinth of trenches, could launch coordinated counterattacks on short notice. Needless to say, getting past the Hindenburg line would not be easy. Construction on the line continued through the winter of 1916-1917. In the meantime, German command was planning a move. A move that would have been equated to treason had it been suggested a year earlier. On November 4, 1917, Kaiser Wilhelm signed off on Operation Alberic. Now, Operation Alberic was the culmination of some serious soul-searching in the German command. At their headquarters in the Rhineland, Hindenburg and Ludendorff conversed at nauseum about the situation on the Western Front. The general consensus to emerge was that the army's current position was no longer attainable. Concerns of a second Somme, or renewed Russian offensive, convinced Hindenburg a change was necessary. And so, Operation Alberic was born. It would be the German army's most complex strategic move since the activation of the Schlieffen Plan. Except this time, they were not advancing. They were withdrawing. Beginning on February 9th, the German army on the Western Front got up, left their posts, and began retiring to the Hindenburg Line. Division by division, regiment by regiment, battalion by battalion, the Germans melted away into the night, abandoning positions they had held since 1914. In their wake, they left a devastated countryside. Villages were burned, bridges demolished, fields flooded, roads and railways torn up. The Germans left nothing to chance. Artwork was removed from the walls and sent to Berlin for safekeeping. In his memoir, Storm of Steel, Ernst Younger described the scorched earth policy as such. Quote, the villages we passed through on our way had the look of vast lunatic asylums. Whole companies were set to knocking or pulling down walls, or sitting on rooftops uprooting the tiles. Trees were cut down, windows smashed, everywhere you looked, clouds of smoke and dust rose from vast piles of debris. All metals and supplies were taken back to our lines. In short, we transformed the land into which the enemy would advance into a wasteland. End quote. As Younger states, the Germans laid waste by necessity. They could not risk the Allies catching wind of the evacuation, and so left nothing to fate. Without sounding inhumane, 
Scorched Earth bought them time and security. The Allies would have to rebuild the harrowed landscape from the ground up, allowing their fleeing adversaries time to consolidate their pre-made fortifications. Operation Alberic took about a month to complete, formally ending on March the 9th. In all, it was a resounding success. One staff officer called it the masterpiece in Ludendorff's art of operations. At no point did the Allies offer meaningful resistance, and as a result, the Western Front was shortened by some 30 kilometers. It smoothed out the large salients left by the Somme. Ten infantry divisions and 20 heavy artillery batteries were freed up, creating an accessible reserve pool which could be deployed anywhere along the now-shortened front. Following the conclusion of Alberic, Ludendorff then set about restructuring the army. He mobilized the 1899 class, which supplied over 300,000 fresh-faced 18-year-olds. Another 124,000 men were combed through administrative and rear echelon posts. Divisions were limited to three regiments apiece, which increased the total number of divisions to 238. Although smaller than French or British divisions, this gave Ludendorff a degree of flexibility when it came to deployment. New training regimes were introduced as the infantry learned how to optimize the defenses of the Hindenburg Line. This resulted in the creation of local reserves known as Eingriff Divisions, which were designated units specially trained in defensive tactics. Eingriff Divisions will come to play a major role in the campaigns of 1917 and become a thorn in the British side throughout the battles of Passchendaele Ridge. Now you would think that such a large-scale evacuation would have a negative impact on morale. After all, it did surrender 1,000 square kilometers of territory won by the blood of tens of thousands of Germans. Certainly, the decision was not without its critics, and one of the most vocal opponents was Crown Prince Ruprecht. Ruprecht was rightly concerned about the effect the retirement would have on morale, but even he was surprised at how smooth the operation went. Elaborate deception plans and leaked dummy operations had fooled the Allies completely. Ruprecht noted later, quote, It's really amazing how inactive the enemy is being. He still seemed to have noticed only small parts of our withdrawal, and has not yet grasped the big picture. The French are even more in the dark than the English. End quote. In all, army morale remained high throughout the evacuation. The infantry were happy to leave their old positions in exchange for something new, and the fact they were not attacked during the evacuation cannot be overstated. As historian Jonathan Boff writes, it proved to the rank and file that their leaders knew their business. The retirement to the Hindenburg Line did not happen in a vacuum. It reflected part of a wider strategy adopted at the end of 1916. As the army was preparing for Operation Alberic, the Navy too was undergoing a campaign of its own. So let us now flip over to the naval side of things, which will help put a bow on this week's discussion. The retirement to the Hindenburg Line was a side effect of the Navy's decision to resume unrestricted submarine warfare. On December 22, 1916, Admiral Henning von Holzendorf, Chief of the Admiralty Staff, 
published a paper emphasizing the need to bring a decisive end to the war by the autumn of 1917. Echoing Falkenhayn's Christmas memorandum, Holzendorf identified Britain as the main obstacle to German victory, writing, quote, Italy and France are economically so hard to hit, they are only upheld by England's energy and activity. If we can break England's back, the war will at once be decided in our favor. End quote. Since a cross-channel invasion remained the stuff of popular fiction, the only way to strike Britain was to target her commerce, and the best way to do that was through the U-boat. Holzendorf understood what this entailed. He appreciated that the United States would not look favorably on the decision, but that fear of American antagonism, not to mention the ire of the other neutrals, notably Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands, should not deter Germany from employing a weapon which offered success. Holzendorf ended his paper by urging the renewed campaign should begin no later than February the 1st, 1917. Holzendorf's proposal found support among the naval staff, notably from our old Jutland buddies Reinhard Scheer and Franz Hipper. The two generals were convinced that the possibility of another fleet action was remote. Scheer famously compared Germany's naval position post-Jutland to that of France after Trafalgar. In truth, both German and British navies had become increasingly cautious. Scheer had taken the high seas fleet out in August, October, and November 1916, but only succeeded in encountering the Grand Fleet's screening vessels, rather than its dreadnoughts or battle cruisers. Meanwhile, the British employing the same bait-and-trap tactics as the Germans, had much greater success, as submarines operating in the Grand Fleet's screen of light cruisers and destroyers badly damaged three of Scheer's dreadnoughts over the course of those months. While these sorties were nothing decisive, they sufficed to make both navies far more cautious about their deployment of capital ships. In September 1916, Jellicoe and Beatty agreed not to send their dreadnoughts and battlecruisers south of a new demarcation line drawn between Newcastle and the German-Danish border. This decision freed up more capital ships to patrol the Skagerrak coast. With the British fleet now more concentrated than ever before, Scheer agreed that further fleet-scale operations were not worth the risk. For the remainder of the war, the High Seas Fleet would not venture far beyond the Helgoland Bight. That being said, we can understand why a renewed U-boat campaign was met with enthusiasm. The only obstacle was the Chancellor, Betham Holwig, who, like he had for the past two years, remained staunchly opposed. Betham Holwig, you see, had other plans. In December 1916, the Chancellor launched his much-anticipated peace offensive, in which he hoped to convince U.S. President Wilson to moderate peace talks between the two camps. The peace offensive was destined to, and probably was, supposed to fail. The term sent to President Wilson made no mention of restoring Belgian or Serbian sovereignty. It also demanded territorial concessions in Africa and the Middle East. The note was sent out on December 18th, and by January 10th, France, Russia, and Great Britain had rejected it. Quoting Abraham Lincoln, Lloyd George told the House of Commons, quote, we accepted this war for an object, and a worth object, 
and the war will end when that object is attained. Under God, I hope it will never end until that time. End quote. By rejecting Holwig's peace note, the Entente handed Germany a moral defense in their quest to unleash their U-boats. They can now argue that the Allies had left no choice. Two years of blockade had left the German people facing malnutrition and starvation. The British and Americans could cause a stink over merchant vessels being targeted, but as Scheer pointedly asked, how was this any different from the Allied blockade, snatching food away from German civilians? The major powers all built submarines before the war. They understood what they were capable of and what they were designed to do. In Scheer's opinion, not using them would be nonsensical and unmilitary. As he wrote in his vindictive memoir, quote, If it sank merchant vessels, including their crews and any passengers, the blame would attach to those who despised our warnings, and, open-eyed, ran the risk of being torpedoed. End quote. Betham Holwig continued to drag his feet on the issue, but pressure from the Navy was starting to mount. Between September 1916 and January 1917, the Navy had undergone a sample campaign, and the results were promising. U-boats operating in the Narrows sunk an average of 307,172 tons per month. Supplemented by the results of the 1915 campaign, Holzendorf predicted that if the U-boats could double these results and sank 600,000 tons per month over a six-month period, then Britain would lose 39% of her shipping tonnage. Germany now had more U-boats to deploy, 105 in 1917, compared to just 37 in 1915. Additionally, U-boat losses were just 10 over the autumn campaign. These calculations were certainly optimistic, and they went a long way in convincing Holwig. On January 9, 1917, Kaiser Wilhelm summoned a meeting at his home in Pless to achieve definitive results. The admirals rolled out their charts and presented a convincing argument. Holzendorf did most of the talking, but had written endorsements from both Scheer and Hipper. The Navy had it all figured out. A 200-page memorandum accompanied the presentation, complete with charts of tonnage entering and leaving British ports, tables showing freight spaces, cargo space, rationing systems, and weather reports. Holzendorf again reiterated that everything was time-sensitive. If Britain was to sue for peace in the autumn, then the campaign could begin no later than February 1st. Hindenburg and Ludendorff, also in attendance, were convinced of the campaign's necessity, as it would give the army more time to complete their retirement to the Hindenburg Line. Despite his opposition, Holwig knew the decision had already been made. Still, he repeated what he had been saying for the past year, that a diplomatic break with the United States and the Baltic neutrals would have damaging consequences. The United States would most likely declare belligerency, which would provide the Entente new and enormous moral and financial support. The Navy did have a convincing argument, but as Holwig pointed out, prospects were not capable of truth. Recognizing the inevitable, Holwig finished his argument by saying, quote, If the military authorities consider the U-boat war essential, I am not in a position to contradict them. End quote.
That night, Kaiser Wilhelm signed the order to resume unrestricted submarine warfare. The following day, construction was halted on two dreadnoughts and five battlecruisers, signaling the end of Tirpitz's dream and Germany's faith in her surface fleet. By resorting to U-boat warfare, Germany's leadership gambled her last card. Princess Evelyn Blücher recalled the public mood was excited yet abrasive, a metaphorical leap in the dark. We all know and feel that Germany is playing her last card, she wrote. With that results, no one can possibly tell. End quote. And this leads us back to where we began our episode. With the decision made, it fell to Germany's new foreign secretary, Arthur Zimmermann, to spread the news. After the January 9th meeting, Zimmermann and Holzendorf traveled to Vienna to convince the new Emperor Charles to endorse the campaign. The Habsburgs were lukewarm to the idea, but Conrad and Grand Admiral Anton Haas gave their endorsements. In any event, the visit to Vienna was a mere courtesy, with the Habsburg military more or less totally subjugated to German authority, they had little choice but to submit. On January 23rd, Emperor Charles and Conrad traveled to Pless to give their personal endorsements to the Kaiser, as part of an early birthday gift. Arthur Zimmerman had only been foreign secretary since November 1916. The son of an East Prussian innkeeper, Zimmerman had done well in the less prestigious consular service of the Foreign Office, before transferring to the diplomatic section where his middle-class origins made him a standout official. In an occupation dominated by Junker-class Vons, Zimmerman was once described by American ambassador, James W. Gerard, as a very jolly, large sort of German. He was a big, good-humored, square-headed bachelor of 50 years with reddish-blonde hair and bushy mustache. He greeted the press warmly, and was particularly popular in the United States, where the Times once described him as a man of the people. But as Barbara Tuckman writes, those who entered the portals of royalty became intoxicated by the fumes of grandeur. Zimmerman was thought to represent the upsurge of small-l liberal forces which may signal peace. He had crossed America by train before the war, spending two days in San Francisco and three days in New York. This made him an expert on American affairs in Berlin. His judgment was trusted, second only to German ambassador Johann Heinrich von Bernsdorf, who had lived in the United States for the last eight years. The three weeks leading up to the campaign were chaotic ones for Zimmermann with the Foreign Office scrambling to alert its embassies of the announcement. Neutral countries were to be kept ignorant up until the evening of January the 31st, only to be informed just before the first torpedoes were let loose. To divert American attention away from Europe, Zimmerman relied heavily on two factors. The first was the advice of fellow diplomat Arthur Hans von Chemnitz, a foreign ministry advisor on Latin American and East Asian affairs. Chemnitz had watched the poorly organized Pancho Villa expedition with great interest. Beginning in March 1916, 10,000 U.S. troops under the command of General John Pershing entered Mexico in search of infamous bandit Pancho Villa, a former ally turned nemesis 
of current President Carranza. Through the use of guerrilla tactics, Villa evaded U.S. and Mexican forces for 11 months, much to the embarrassment of Pershing and Presidents Wilson and Carranza. The expedition ended in February 1917, having accomplished none of its objectives. It hinted that the U.S. Army was woefully unprepared for a general war, and left U.S.-Mexican relations severely frayed. Watching from afar, Arthur Chemnitz sensed an opportunity. Anti-American sentiment ran high in Mexico throughout the duration of the Villa expedition, and Chemnitz suggested that if need be, Germany could use this anger to entice Mexico into a formal alliance against the United States. Such action, if it immediately followed an American declaration of war on Germany, would divert U.S. attention away from Europe. From the German perspective, this was a low-risk, high-reward exchange, and some sort of anti-American agreement with Mexico was not totally out of the question. Mexico had reached out to both Germany and Japan to counter American expansion. While these talks fell through, a precedent had already been set. The second factor in Zimmerman's scheme was Japan. America's relationship with Japan had always been problematic, but in the years after the Russo-Japanese War, rumors and hearsay were amplified. There were near-daily rumblings that the Japanese were acquiring ports along the Mexican coast, that Japanese officers were training with Mexican infantry, and finally, in 1908, that 10,000 Japanese troops were going to storm the Panama Canal. None of these rumors ever came to fruition, but it was in response to Japanese expansion that the United States commissioned their first dreadnoughts in 1910, touching off a naval race between the two countries. Trouble was, Japan was still an ally of Britain, as per their military alliance in 1902. Japan had declared war on Germany in August 1914, and had won more territory for herself than any of the Allies, locking up German naval bases and colonial possessions across the Pacific. We talked about that back in episode 19, Numbers Are Everything. By 1917, the United States was firmly divided. The East was antagonistic to Germany, and the West towards Japan. Wilson had won re-election because his anti-war platform appeased voters on both seaboards. Zimmerman thus believed a combination of Mexico, Japan, and American dividedness would keep the United States out of Europe, or keep them out just long enough for the U-boats to do their business. On January 12th, Chemnitz reminded Zimmerman of Mexico's earlier offer for an alliance against the United States. Although Chemnitz was skeptical of its practicality, he felt it was his duty to leave no stone unturned to ameliorate the situation through diplomatic means. Zimmerman agreed, and two days later, the final copy of the Zimmerman telegram was drafted. The telegram was given oral clearance by Ludendorff, but not by Betham Holwig, who only became aware of its contents after it had been sent out on January 15th. When Holwig discovered what Zimmerman had sent, he was horrified. But, as Barbara Tuckman writes, Holwig, suffering the pains of remorse, could not undo what had already been done. Having swallowed the cake, Holwig hoped to avoid the stomach ache. 48 hours later, Nigel de Grey, 
a star codebreaker in room 40, strode into the office of Admiral Hall. He handed Hall a copy of the partially decrypted telegram, and asked, Do you want to bring America into the war? Hall replied yes, and to Gray responded, Well, sir, I've got something here which, well, it's a rather astonishing message, which might do the trick. Within a month, the fully decrypted telegram lay in the hands of President Wilson. The Great War in Europe had crossed the Atlantic. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. This is a quick and easy way to help grow the show, as the more reviews we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. This has been episode 68, part A of the Great War podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.